you've been keeping track of the main characters in the book of Acts, your scorecard would probably look something like this. Chapters 1 to 5. Well, who would be in chapters 1 to 5? Who's the main character? Peter. Peter, yeah. Simon Peter. The Apostle Peter. How about chapters 6 to 7? Give you a hint. We spent two months on one chapter. Marty's got it. Stephen. Uh, chapter 8. This guy's a little bit lesser known, but he is a real hero. Who is kind of the star of chapter 8? <laughs> Philip, thanks, Marty. Philip, um, with a guest appearance by Peter. Yeah, Peter did show up in there, but chapter 8 was mostly about Philip. And for the first 31 verses of chapter 9, it was who? Who did we look at the last few weeks? Paul slash Saul. Paul slash Saul, that's right. Saul will remain the focus for the entire rest of the book of Acts, except for the next couple chapters. Beginning now in 9.32 and extending two chapters to 11.18, the focus of the story of Acts returns to the man on whom it first was focused on, Peter. Now an important caveat. Obviously the main character of this passage and the book of Acts and the whole New Testament and arguably the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the main character. Everything is by him and for him and about him. So men like Peter, Stephen, uh, Philip, and Saul... Um, and others, many men and women that we've read about, they're merely lanterns filled with light. But you knew that. I just wanted to point that out quickly. As much as I'm saying the, the star of the show here is Peter, we know who the real star of the show is. The Holy Spirit working in Peter. Jesus, whom Peter serves as master, Lord and master. He's the real star of the show. But the interesting thing about the four men that I've mentioned, Peter, Stephen, Philip, and Saul, is that the last three of those men represented crucial steps in advancing the gospel away from Jerusalem and towards the ends of the earth, as commanded by Jesus at the very beginning of the book of Acts. Stephen had undermined the necessity of the temple and emphasized a God who works outside the borders of Israel. Philip brought the gospel to Samaria and Ethiopia, the last two of Jesus' four places that the gospel is to be taken to, Jerusalem, Galilee, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, in going to Samaria and to, well, to the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip takes that message to Samaria and the ends of the earth. And Saul has already received his commission as apostle to the Gentiles, something that will be fleshed out much more in the last half of the book of Acts, but we already know that's his mission. And so up until now, Peter is the only one of these heroes who has not explicitly taken part in advancing the good news away from the Jews and away from Jerusalem and away from the law, and towards the Gentiles. But that's all about to change in a big way. More on that in the next few weeks. For now, we have Peter sort of wandering the western plains and shores and coasts of Israel, demonstrating the love of God, not through the powerful preaching that's kind of been his trademark in the book of Acts. Right? Anytime anybody needs to step up, step up and say something powerful, it's always Peter. With the charisma, the, the core gospel message. But that's not what we see Peter doing here. Rather, we see Peter stepping up through powerful healing miracles. We have seen that as well earlier in Acts. But here it's not about the preaching, it's about the healing. We'll look at two stories given to us to set up what is quite likely the greatest use the Holy Spirit ever had for Peter the Apostle. But first, a confession and a warning. The confession. I've always been pretty immature. Shocking, I know. <laughs> I can be pretty immature. This hasn't changed much since I was a snickering, sarcastic adolescent. And many of you knew me in that state. I'm shocked that you allow me to be here. Um, 
I was an adolescent who at some point read Acts 9, 32-43. An adolescent who, upon reading Acts 9, 32-43, noticed with much hilarity the two most prominent names in these stories not named Peter. And those names, as I understood, were Anus and Dorcas. <laughs> yeah. It's okay to laugh. I laugh too. Uh, Ashley is pronounced Aeneas. So there's that. But I just wanted to give you a warning. If your comedic sensibilities happen to be in line with my own, I want to give you permission to giggle and snicker at the names that we will encounter in this story. Go ahead. I'll understand. It's okay. Just don't let it distract you from the main point. Because it definitely distracted me from the main point when I was 14 or whatever. So let's read Acts 9, 32-43. Meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place, and he came down to visit the believers in the town of Lydda. There he met a man named Aeneas, who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your sleeping mat. And he was healed instantly. Then the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around, and they turned to the Lord. There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is... Ha ha ha, Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydda, so they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, he took them to, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes that Dorcas had made for them. But Peter asked them all to leave the room, then he knelt and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then he called in the, in the widows and all the believers, and he presented her to them, alive. The news spread through the whole town, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. So, now that Saul is on their team, the church is now in a period of respite from the first wave of intense persecution they had felt. It would seem that Peter makes, makes use of this itinerant calm to travel around Judea in a general pastoral tour, sort of what we know uh, Walter Selke kind of does now with all the many churches he's connected with. He's kind of pastor of the pastors, and that's what Peter is doing here. He's checking in with believers in the cities that had first been evangelized by Philip um, after his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. He traveled up along the coast, uh, it says so in chapter 8, verse 40. So if we consult the big map of missions, uh, we see uh, that Peter didn't travel very far from Jerusalem, at least not by modern standards. Lydda, so here's Jerusalem, here's Lydda, here's Joppa. Uh, Lydda was only about as far away from Jerusalem as Legal is from Clyde. So not very far, about 20-25k. Uh, while Joppa, which was the main seaport for Jerusalem, was only another 10 kilometers northwest of there. Of course, that re represented a long day's journey in those days, but for us, when we think of the geography of it, it's not very far. We can wrap our heads around that pretty easily. But the word that Luke chooses for the people whom Peter went to visit on this ministry tour is an interesting one. So here's your Greek word nerd moment for the Sunday. Peter traveled around the country, it says in verse 32, um, visiting the Hagios in Lydda. And that word, Hagios, is translated the Lord's people in the NIV. In the NLT, it's the believers. 
But a better translation might be saints, since hagios literally means holy ones. It's a word that Luke rarely uses to describe Christian believers. Only four times in the whole book of Acts, and you know how many times he talks about the believers in the book of Acts, only four times does he use the word hagios. And three of them are in this chapter, and two of them are in our passage. Verses 13, 32, and 41. He uses the word hagios. It's not a favorite word of Luke. So why do I mention it? Well, because hagios is a favorite word of our hero du jour, Peter. In his own letter, Oh, sorry, I had a thing. Hagios means holy one or holy ones. In his own letter, in 1 Peter 2, Peter calls us a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. And later in the same chapter, he calls us a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. That holy priesthood and holy nation utilize the same root word as Hagios, holy. And did you notice what is common about Peter's usage in his own letter and Luke's usage of the word when describing Peter's tour in Acts 9? It's a holy priesthood. It's a holy nation. And Peter traveled around visiting all the Hagios. In these cases, and in any case found in the New Testament, Hagios, or holy people, is a designation for the church as a whole. It's a group title, not an individual title. In the Old Testament, they, they relied heavily on individuals, the high priest. He was the ultimate Hagios. And so we no longer re rely on a holy lineage to perform holy sacrifices to a holy God. We are the brothers and sisters in a new holy lineage, a new holy family. Together, we offer holy sacrifices to our holy God. There is, of course, nothing holy about us me or you, except for the holiness gifted upon us when we were chosen by our holy God to be his own holy people. We are not inherently holy, we are made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus. Hagios, therefore, is each of us, and it is all of us. It's a group word. And so, again, though this is a story about Peter, it's really a story about the Hagios, the holy people of God. Peter just happens to be the most prominent face of that Hagios. But Peter is not a Hagios, since Hagios is not an individual title. He is not the Holy One. He is a member of the Holy Ones. Do you see the important distinction? We like to make the Gospel very much about me and myself. But in the Old Testament, for sure, it was never about individuals. It was all about a nation. And that same sense of, of group, of community, of unification that Yella talked about in his communion message, that same sense of unity is carried over into the language of the New Testament as well. Peter doesn't visit holy ones, individual holy ones. He visits the holy ones, all of them. It's a group thing, and we are part of it. So let's meet two unfortunately named members of the Hagios, a group which we are fortunate to be numbered among. And the first man we meet, we meet is Aeneas. For eight years, Aeneas has been bedridden as a paralytic. But that all changes when he encounters the powerful faithfulness of the Apostle Peter. And actually, Peter himself makes it clear that it's not him, but rather Jesus, who is performing powerful acts of love. Clearly and emphatically, Peter doesn't say, Aeneas, I'm healing you now in the name of Jesus. He doesn't mention himself at all. Peter leaves himself entirely out of the equation. Peter begins his declaration to Aeneas by saying, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter seeks no glory for himself, 
but only for Jesus. Which makes sense, since the power to heal doesn't come from Peter anyway. It comes from Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. So he's given the credit where it's due. I think there's an important lesson for those of us who serve in there somewhere. And so Peter heals Aeneas and immediately gives him the same chore that Angie gives to our girls when companies come over. Make your bed. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Now make your bed. Roll up your bed mat and walk. In other words, take up your mat, that thing which represented your suffering and your indignity. Take up your mat and carry it away. It's gone. You don't need it anymore. You're free. Now, if this story sounds familiar, familiar, that's because it's supposed to sound familiar. Jesus performed several miracles very similar to this one, the most famous probably being in Mark 2, where the friends of the paralytic man take the roof off the house and lower the paralyzed man down. We're all pretty familiar with that story. Um, Jesus sees the faith of these, these friends of the paralyzed man, and so he forgives the sin, forgives the sins of the paralytic. When this enrages, and of course it always enrages, the indignant teachers of the law, who hear his bold and blasphemous claim to forgive sins, Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins by, by asking, he says to these teachers of the law, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk away, which is easier. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. The man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And that's quoting Mark 2 there. And that argument has always stuck with me. Any idiot can say, hey, I forgive your sins. I can say that to you. Shane, I forgive all your sins. So what? What does it mean coming from me? I have no authority, no power to forgive sins. Those are just empty words. But only someone with the power to forgive sins would have the same power to offer such a definitive and beautiful display of mastery over human suffering. If he can get a paralyzed man to walk up with just the command of his word, sort of like God commanding the earth into existence, if he has that same command over the natural world and over human suffering then perhaps he has the authority to forgive sins. And I love that argument. In fact, all the rest of the Gospels is displaying exactly that argument. Every time he multiplies loaves, every time he walks on water, any time he calms a storm, any time he heals a blind person, any time he does any of those things, he's showing, hey, if I can do this, you better believe I can do that other thing. If I can heal you, if I can command nature, if I can kick out demons and control the spirit supernatural world, then I have the power to forgive sins. He heals because he loves. He forgives because he loves. And his hagios, his holy people, we know this. His hagios are only hagios. We are only holy people because of his willingness to redeem and heal and love and forgive us. That's what makes us hagios. And so Peter, being a member of the hagios, had experienced this redemption himself. Peter, being a, a member of the Hagios, is imbued with all the power necessary to merely speak the words and paralysis is overcome. Again, it's nothing special about Peter, except that he's willing and faithful to have that power channeled through him. It's still Jesus doing the work, just as it was in, the, in Mark 2. But because Peter knows the fullness of being Hagios, of being one of the holy ones, he knows 
the redemption required to become that, and he knows the power that that comes with becoming that as well. Because of that, he's able to heal this paralyzed man, just as Jesus promised. And so the result of Peter's powerful miracle is the same result as Jesus' powerful miracle in Mark 2. Amazement. Amazement that draws people closer to God. In Acts 9.35, it says that all the people who lived in Lydda and the plains of Sharon, I think it's Sharon, but whatever. All the people who lived in Lydda and the plains saw the paralyzed man walking around, and they turned to the Lord. This is the first sense of Peter dipping his toes into a ministry to the Gentiles, following the lead of Stephen and Philip and Saul. Why? Because the area where Lydda and Joppa are was known to have a large Gentile population. Around and uh, Port towns were often like this in the ancient world. There was people coming from all over the place. And Joppa was the port town for Jerusalem. And so that area was known to be very Gentile. And it says very explicitly that because of Peter's work, everyone in the area was now coming to understand, was now turning to God, including those Gentiles. So if even these hardened Gentiles are turning to the Lord, what could that mean for the future of Peter and the future of the church? More on that in the next coming weeks. Now, if Aeneas represented forced inactivity in that he was paralyzed and so he couldn't work, then the next suffering saint we hear about in the story represents the opposite. She represents extremely productive activity in, in service to Jesus. Um, Dorcas is a Greek name, an unfortunate Greek name, and the Aramaic version of that same name is Tabitha. They mean the same thing, kind of like Ivan and John are the same name, they're just in different languages. Dorcas and Tabitha are the same thing, and they both mean gazelle, which is an elegant and energetic and beautiful creature, not unlike the servant-hearted namesake in verses 36 to 43. What a great name for Tabitha. She has all the elegance and energy and beauty, true beauty, of a gazelle. However, it's my opinion that only one of those two names capture this elegance and beauty appropriately, and so I'll be referring to her as Tabitha from now on rather than Dorcas. It also happens to be the name that Peter chooses to refer to her as, so I'm in good company, but I'll get back to that later. Tabitha was a local hero for doing all the little things that our father never tires of seeing his children do, his hagios do, performed with one another. She was tireless in her devotion to the basics of Christianity, generosity, kindness, service, and charity. She was so deeply beloved by her community that when she died, word was sent urgently to Peter, who was known to be in the area, he was about 10 kilometers away, but time was sensitive. Time was sensitive because bodies were regularly buried before sunset of the same day for ritual reasons. And Peter was 10, 10 kilometers, he was, over, he was a journey away anyway in those times. So they sent runners, and those runners had to get all the way out to Lydda, find Peter, and then they had to get all the way back before Sunday. So the, the two messengers sped off with great haste, and Peter likewise hit the road without hesitation to make it back to help this woman who had helped so many other people. Upon arriving, he discovered a woman cleaned and prepared for burial, a last purification for a woman who demonstrated such pure love for others. The scene that greeted Peter was, understandably, an incredibly emotional one. As is so often the case 
with humble, loving servants like Tabitha, the full force of her impact on others wasn't realized until his funeral time. You've probably been to funerals where you've sat and heard, I didn't know they did all that for all those people. That's, that's because they do those things without needing the limelight. I'm the opposite. Everything I do, I want someone to notice how great I am. <laughs> Women like Tabitha are the true heroes because they do it without need of recognition. And it's not until they're gone that their, their absence is really, really noticed and felt and grieved over. I think our friend from Rochester we had a celebration in the, the spring. Marcella. Marcella, yeah. I was thinking of exactly that. I was thinking of Marcella and I was thinking of Gordon because at Gordon's funeral, there was hundreds of people there and everyone was shocked how many people were there except when you think about what an impact he had. When you think of Marcella, I heard things about Marcella's life that I had no idea about. I had no idea she was such a kind-hearted, servant-hearted woman. I mean, we had an idea, but you see the full force of it on display when they're gone. Yeah, well said, Dennis. And so as Peter arrives in the upper room, He's met by a weeping throng of widows, literally wearing the evidence of Tabitha's heart on their sleeves. She had made each of them, and these are, again, widows in those days were among the most vulnerable and neglected people group in their society. And Tabitha had taken the time to make each one of them an article of clothing, a dress for her, a cloak for her, a robe for her. And so Tabitha is a heroic example of James's lesson that, when James says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after who? Orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's what real religion looks like. Not a bunch of fancy rules, not a gathering time where we follow the same rituals every time. Real religion is serving those who are most in need of being served. Like Tabitha. She did that. She got that. She knew that. She exemplified that. It must have left a real impact on Peter, but it also must have reminded him of another story from his time with his master Jesus. So again, if the story of the raising of Tabitha sounds familiar, that's because it's supposed to. In Mark 5, and in Acts part 1, which is, of course, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus hears that a daughter of a synagogue leader named Jairus has died. And the story of Jesus resurrecting Jairus' daughter is shockingly similar to the story of Peter resurrecting Tabitha. I mean, aside from the names, it's basically the same story. Like Jesus, Peter too is greeted by a host of weepers and mourners. Like Jesus, Peter too clears everyone out of the room. Except Jesus allowed the girl's parents, as well as his disciples James, John, and oh yeah, Peter, the same Peter who's performing this act of resurrection, he, he was there to witness Jesus' act of resurrection. And like Jesus... Peter says almost exactly the same thing to the dead girl, differing only by a single letter. I mentioned earlier that, that Peter doesn't say, Dorcas, rise up. He says, Tabitha, rise up. Well, that's because Jesus spoke gently but commandingly to, to Jairus' daughter, saying in Aramaic, Talitha kum. Talitha meaning little girl. So little girl, get up. Talitha kum. Peter declares, Tabitha kum. Or Tabitha, get up. Talitha and Tabitha differ by only a single letter in both the Greek and the English. Is that a coincidence? No, I think it's very intentional. I think Luke is being very intentional. Just as Jesus said Talitha kum, Peter saying Tabitha kum, we're to connect these two stories. Peter could have declared Dorcas get up, but then he would have giggled at her name and the whole thing would have been ruined. <laughs> Instead, 
he chose to speak the name Tabitha so that it would line up almost perfectly with the story of Jesus' res resurrection of a similar but different young lady. Talithakum and Tabithakum. Whoever it is that rises up from the dead in both these stories, she does so after encountering the life-giving authority of Jesus Christ. Jairus' daughter through Jesus himself, Tabitha through Peter. Both these women, young women, uh, Jairus' daughter and Tabitha, is welcomed back into the Hagios, the Holy Ones of God, to continue her life with humble, transformative acts of service and love to the least of these. And though Jesus in Luke 8 had ordered Jairus and his wife not to speak of the miracle to anyone, which, yeah, right, as if their daughters raised from the dead, they didn't tell anyone. But Jesus said it. But it's the opposite in Acts 9. In Acts 9, the result of such a powerful miracle is the same in Joppa as it was in Lydda. It says, it became known all over, and many people believed in the Lord. Which, when a dead person has risen to life, by your power, you're going to get some fame out of it. Makes sense. The story then ends with Peter spending a great deal of time in Joppa, staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. Now, in those days, you know, tax collectors were seen as like lesser people, right? Um, prostitutes, that was a job that was seen as a lesser job. Well, you can put tanners in that category a lesser in a lesser way as well. Because A, they were very smelly. It's a very smelly job. So their, their houses were always outside of the city. But not only was it smelly, it was like ritually unclean. Because you were forbidden as a Jew to handle what? A dead body. A dead body. A dead animal body too. And so they were seen as unclean, kind of filthy people. Lesser people. That's who Peter chooses to stay with. Simon the Tanner. Peter would soon learn a great deal about overcoming those boundaries between the Hagios, the Holy Ones, and the unclean people, like Gentiles and Tanners. He's going to learn a lot about that. And it starts with Simon the Tanner. So, what does this all mean to us? Well, first of all, a reminder, an important reminder, that we are all Hagios. Your faith doesn't belong just to you. It belongs to all of us together. It is a shared faith. It's a communal faith. It is very hard, and I would argue borderline impossible, to be a Christian and not be surrounded by fellow believers. I can't imagine how hard that would be. I mean, it, there's cases of it, obviously. But people who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I really question that. How is that, how is that possible? You need the encouragement. You need those, I need you guys to keep me in line, and I need your support, and... I need to learn from you and be challenged by you. It's not easy all the time, but it's necessary. We are Hagios. We are the chosen holy people of God together. As, as Peter would write in 1 Peter 2, we are living stones built into a spiritual house, a spiritual temple. No one stone is strong in and of itself. It's only when it's built together that it becomes something holy, significant. So we are the chosen holy people of God. As such, each one of us is like Ennius. Each one of us is like Tabitha. And each one of us is like Peter. What do I mean by that? Well, we are the ones being healed and redeemed and loved and forgiven in order to be made holy. That was true for Peter. That was true for Peter. That was true for Ennius. That was true for Tabitha. They were healed and redeemed, loved and forgiven and made holy. We are the ones who show kindness and compassion to others as a response to the gift of holiness that we have received. 
And we are the ones empowered by Jesus Christ to perform powerful acts that bring life where there is death in order for many to see Jesus and turn to him. And I don't just mean like dead like a corpse. Anytime there is anything dead, and there is much that is dead about our society, about us individually, there's a lot about us that is gross and filthy and rotten. But we're called and asked to bring life to those dead, rotten things, just like Peter did. And so we receive his love like Aeneas, we reflect his love like the excellent servant Tabitha, and we redeem others with his love, which is what Peter does in these two stories. That's the paradox of being hagios, of being God's chosen people, and that's plural. We are filthy and we are fallen, we are careless and we are corrupt, we are selfish and we are self-righteous. It doesn't do any good to deny any of those things. We are all of those things. But in Jesus, we are not seen as those things. In Jesus, we are covered by something else. In Jesus, we are holy. We are no longer those things, we are now holy. And so we put aside all that brokenness with the Holy Spirit's help in order to serve him and make him known in places where sin paralyzes people, in the same way Aeneas was paralyzed. How many of you have been paralyzed by sin, by an inability to move beyond yourself and get closer to Jesus? How much is sin like a paralysis? Very much like a paralysis. And so we put aside our brokenness to make him known in places where sin paralyzes people, where marginalized people, like the widows gathering in the upper room, marginalized people weep and mourn, we go to those places. We bring life and love and light to those places. Wherever death shows its ugly face, there we are showing life. Wherever humanity seeks healing and life, that's where Hagios belongs. That's our home among people who are hurting and suffering. And since we are together being shaped into his Hagios, his holy people, we better be like Aeneas and overcome our paralysis by the power of his grace. We better serve the outcasts and the lonely like Tabitha. We better bring life to dead places like Peter. And we better know just how unworthy we are, as well as just how worthy he makes us, so we can properly love him and make his love known to others. These are two very small stories of healings of very small people. By another small person, Peter. It's nothing great about Peter, except his faith. These are small stories that set up the big story to come. That we are all Hagios, we receive his love, we reflect his love, we redeem others like his love. And Peter's about to find out that that redemption explodes out of the scope of what he imagined was possible. Even Gentiles. So that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks after, after this one. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you call us to be your holy ones. That together we are shaped into something that looks like your son, that we are living stones in a spiritual house, that we are different parts of a spiritual body, and you make that possible. You get all the glory for that. Father, I pray that we would be people who receive your grace like Aeneas, who reflect your grace like Tabitha, and who redeem others by your grace like Peter. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.